Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Safety Perspectives from Region 6. I'm Frank Davis, and with me I have my law partner, John Surma, broadcasting live from our Ogletree Tower in Houston. John, good morning. Good morning, Frank. Isn't the view lovely from this high up over Houston? And today we get to kind of rehash our our three-part series uh, concerning fat cats. And uh, we thought we would wrap up that three-part series with sort of an epilogue, uh, giving a little bit of overview of some of our uh, experiences uh, as it's contrasted against the cautionary tales that we uh, revealed during the three-part series. Again, as always, this isn't legal advice. This is discussion and, and just thought-provoking ideas for for employers to think about. And with that, John, I know that you uh, had a pretty interesting scene preservation case. Yeah. And, but to make a long story short, we had in a plant a uh, death case where, uh, unfortunately, as a result of the incident that caused the employee's death, uh, there was a lot of uh, blood and biological material that ended up kind of over a a certain area in the plant area. And this is one of those cases, and it it, it kind of ties to some of the other points we made during the three-part series where, you know, very, very early on, you know, with regard to scene preservation, um, literally by like three o'clock the afternoon of the fatal incident, we had an order from a federal court that was compelling us to preserve the scene. And, you know, as lawyers, and, and this oftentimes frustrates our clients that we have to do this, you know, we had to kind of explain in, in extreme detail exactly what the expectations were set by that order and how literally we could not and should not do anything at all to alter anything about the scene, no matter how uncomfortable that might make us, no matter how modest the alteration would be. That incident happened, I don't remember if it was a Wednesday or Thursday. We were back out there um, Saturday morning when the lawyers had gone away and, and, you know, I was meeting with clients and, you know, working through logistics on different pieces, et cetera. And uh, I needed to find the plant manager. And they said, well, you know, he's out by the scene of the accident. And um, I get out kind of in the general vicinity of where this had happened. And I see the plant manager's back to me and I see what appears to be a fire hose in his hand. And he is washing down the area and washing away all of the biological matter that was there. You know, obviously we're in violation of that order. And, um, you know, he just, he, 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 you know, basically, in not so many words or actually in more words than this said, you know, I'm not going to listen to that. I don't care. And just kept going. And, um, 
you know, fortunately, in terms of things that were really, truly relevant to the case, it didn't have any actual impact. And so nobody actually sought an order against us, but we were in federal court. And, you know, as, as I'm sure your experience has been, Frank, you know, federal court judges tend to be uh, firm. Yes. And, and <laughs> expect complete compliance with their orders, not just complying with the spirit of their order. You know, we were in a hearing and it, it, it really didn't serve a purpose that was relevant to the hearing. But, you know, one of the lawyers slipped in about how this had happened over the weekend. It really could have gone sideways. And, and so, you know, I say all that to say this, which is there's this idea of spoliation of evidence or spoiling of the evidence. And there's, there's you know, Frank, and, and, you know, you can share with the audience a little bit about the legalities of that. But I mean, that can result in some pretty onerous sanctions to the party that spoils the evidence. Uh, fortunately, in that case, it didn't happen, but it could have been really, really ugly yeah. know, because somebody was uncomfortable with the scene. Yeah, that's lucky. I mean, I appreciate him being uncomfortable with the scene, but uh, that's got to be addressed in a different way. And, and uh, you know, as we discussed in the three-part series, uh, getting getting some of that psychological help for people that are affected by the event is uh, by the event or the just seeing the scene. I, I think is is crucial. And you know, we almost always see our clients go out and and recruit somebody to come in and talk to people uh, and. I think uh, employees tend to really appreciate that. I mean, you don't force them to talk to to the to the mental health professionals, but certainly give them the opportunity. And it's uh, and we typically would give them the opportunity while they're on the clock. Uh, just to, I shouldn't say typically, but that is does seem to be how it typically happens: is they they go visit while they're on the clock. It's um, it, it's a good opportunity. Yeah, you said something that I agree with, by the way, that it often frustrates clients to have to preserve these scenes. And it really does. You know, you're talking about an indoor controlled scene. Oftentimes these scenes occur outside in the weather. And um, in Texas, you have hot suns and you have intermittent rains and and it can really tear up equipment. Uh, you know, I've had several cases that occurred either on construction sites or electrical contact cases uh, electrocution cases where we get the OSHA preservation letter and then the equipment, the PPE, everything that is involved in the scene is is left outside. And sometimes some of these compliance officers don't get out immediately. Most of them are really good about getting out right away, but some of them can take three, four days. And I had one case where it took them a week to get out. And and there was some really sensitive equipment sitting outside getting ruined in the rain pursuant to a preservation letter. But, you know, I told the client, look, we got a preservation letter. The client did a good job of leaving it out there, but the scene wasn't preserved because the weather unpreserved it. But that, that's really frustrating for clients to watch. They want to pick up the equipment and the pieces. They want to go put it in a place where they can store it and, and make it safe. So it doesn't get deteriorated. So it doesn't get damaged. So you can see it in its real state from, you know, an insulated pole or, or any type of equipment that happens to be out in the sun and the rain and the weather. Well, and, that's particularly true with me, uh, metallic surfaces, you know, especially when you're talking about like fractures and breaks. And, you know, you were talking about line contact cases and, and you know, where the burn marks are, et cetera, you know, mm-hmm. and exposure to weather. I mean, you know, you can literally, 
yeah, I was going to say, you can literally destroy the metallurgist's ability to determine what the fracture was caused by because there's so much corrosion on top of the fracture surface. So yeah, no, that's a huge, huge problem. We have. Uh, one time I had to contact area office because it was taking too long and there's a front coming through. And I, I said, look, I need your permission to move this stuff. I'm going to carefully document it. And we even brought out a crew to do a, a scene preservation layout. It was basically a map showing where everything was and in, in true distance. And they agreed to let us do that. And then we preserved everything. Uh, but sometimes you got to be creative when, and work with that area office especially if they're not going to get out right away because you're right you can't you can't there is a certain spoliation of evidence point where it gets damaged because it's just sitting out or or even it's and this was in a public place so it was at risk of being stolen as well but you know you you mentioned a point that was actually another example that i meant to talk to you about before we got going you know with regard to getting counselors involved in that incident that i was talking about we had counselors on the ground day one and, you know, it, it's, it's in an industrial environment and, you know, in those environments, particularly with managers, um, but, but this is throughout the workforce, you know, no, 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 I, I, I'm good. I don't need that help, so on and so forth. But I had a case where one of the folks involved absolutely positively refused, and, and I knew that they needed to talk to somebody. But, you know, no, I'm, I, I can deal with this. I'm fine. I'm good. We get into the deposition and a couple of sharp questions from the lawyer. And, I mean, he lets out this kind of primordial scream and runs out of the room and is devastated. And it's like, you know, look, been talking to you a long time about you need to get some help. It's there. It's, it's, we can still make that happen. You know, unfortunately I can't make it happen today and we're going to have to get you through this deposition the best way possible. Whereas the folks that had gotten help, they didn't have any problem at all. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's very telling, right? At least he walked out of the room and didn't lay out all, all his guilty confessions, uh, you know, and which brings us to our next point. I think it's important personally, to be a little bit thoughtful of, about the spontaneous answers that you give, uh, not to say that it's important not to be honest, because you got to be honest. But there is a such thing as uh, oversharing or exceeding the less is best rule. You're familiar with the less is best rule, right? Oh, yes, indeed, I am. So the story that I would transition us with is that we had this fat cat uh, out in an unknown part of uh, region six, and this client got a citation. We went and we sat down with the area director, and uh, and we went through the citation. I explained why the citation shouldn't stand, and the area director listened carefully, took good notes, looked through the file, looked up at me, and said, "Frank, I, it looks like I issued a bad citation. Let me go write it up, and and we'll we'll dismiss it in the settlement agreement." Before we sat down, I had this HSE manager with me, and I said, I will do all the talking. You don't have to say anything. If you'll just, you know, if if I have a specific question, I'll look at you and I'll ask that question. But I think it'd be better in this case on these facts if you just let me be the spokesperson, because this is a purely legal argument. And he agreed and he agreed. And so we're sitting there. And uh, this area director says, I'll go right up the informal settlement and we'll dismiss this. Just stand by. And she starts to stand up and he says, oh, 
Ah, it's so great. And I'm thinking, it is great. Now stop talking. Uh, but he kept on going. And he said, oh, yeah. And after this event, here are all the things we did to correct it to make it better. He discussed all the post-remedial measures that OSHA can't discover during an inspection. And she looked at it and she said, hmm, well, now I'm less comfortable dismissing it. I'll tell you what, why don't we adjourn and I'll circle back with you. Long story short, because of what he said, that litigation went on for six more months, uh, had four or five depositions. And I was preparing a motion for summary judgment before the solicitor's office finally dismissed it. It got to be a lot more intensive affair than if we would have just been able to get rid of it at the beginning. And that's, uh, again, while he was being honest and he was telling the story, which was great, he violated the less is best rule. And that uh, actually gave me, a, gave, me, gave me a pretty good litigation story. So I have to thank him for that. But uh, that's something to keep in mind, not only at the informal conference, but during the course of the inspection. Try to be thoughtful about what's being asked and then try to answer the question. Elaboration isn't uh, often a, um, an excellent tool to use. Yeah, well, and, and I wouldn't even limit it so much to just questions and answers. I mean, I think that's, you know, you have to be thoughtful and deliberative throughout the investigation process and the inspection process to make sure that you know what you're providing is responsive, truthful, accurate, etc. But you need to you know be careful about not oversharing and not providing information that OSHA just doesn't need. Because I mean I I suspect anybody who's been at this for any significant period of time, whether as a lawyer doing workplace health and safety or as a consultant or as somebody who's you know the 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 employer um, side health and safety person, you know, you've seen situations where, you know, kind of that one more answer as opposed to one more question thing just sinks the ship. And, and sometimes it's really better just to kind of sit there and, and chew on your tongue a little bit and, and not go down the road of, you know, sharing that one more piece of information that you just absolutely positively convinced they have to have, even though it doesn't really relate to anything and look out you know, that just, that creates problems. How about the employee written witness statement? I mean, any, any, any risks with that, John? Oh yeah. All kind of, of, of problems with that one. And, and it kind of leads to, and you know, this relates to, to candor and honesty. And there were plenty of statements given to OSHA and written statements. It, it, long story short, this, this was a case that involved some fellows doing steel erection building a, a building, the, the roof deck was 43 feet off the ground. And um, they were just building the shell at the time. And they had all the fall protection equipment you could possibly want. The training was problematic, but it's a small company. And so, um, you know, that's not necessarily a huge shock. But, you know, I show up and, and you know, it was close enough to where I was at the time that, EMS hadn't removed the uh, victim from the scene and I was a ways away, but I, I you know, thought I saw a fall protection harness and, and talking with the client. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he was wearing fall protection. You know, just think he unhooked himself and when he unhooked himself fell and, you know, kind of went through this, you know, elaborate ruse with me. And, and then, you know, we were in the area office and, you know, presenting managers for interviews and, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's wearing fall protection, and and we kept going back 
to OSHA's area office to present different people, but there was always one of the two primary managers that was part of the interview process. And finally, the area, excuse me, the, the compliance officer who was handling the inspection pulls me aside and um, says, hey, look, you know, your guys are lying and we can prove that they're lying. And we're going to have them come in one more time. And I'm going to tell you right now, there will be U.S. Marshals here. And the U.S. Marshals will not leave them leave if they repeat those lies. I mean, it's clearly taken aback. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, I saw what I saw, which wasn't real clear. And it was at a distance. And there was a lot going on in the scene. Like, how can you be so convinced that they were lying? I'm going to show you a picture that's going to show to you that they were lying. Well, the picture was taken by one of the first responders, I believe it was the police. And literally the fall protection harness had been kind of draped over this man's body. He was not wearing it. It was draped over his body, you know, and, and, and clearly number one, they were lying about the fact that he was wearing the fall protection, but number two, and going back to our scene preservation, comments they had altered the scene in a radically dramatic way and you know the next time we went back i had a very very long conversation with them and quint shared the details but you know basically kind of alluded to the fact that like osha probably has photographs that you aren't aware of and are you a hundred percent sure and and you know we had arranged criminal counsel for them to be there etc cetera, etc cetera. And ultimately, when they got in and were asked the questions the last time, they owned up to the fact that now they were scared. They, they put the fall protection harness on him afterwards because they were afraid that they were going to go to jail, so on and so forth. I was a real courtesy of that OSHA office to give yeah. you the heads up. Yeah. But I mean, Frank, I think that goes to the reason why it's important for employers to really think long and hard about when they're hiring counsel, hiring folks that actually do this for a living and have those relationships. I mean, but for the fact we had that relationship with that office and in particular with that compliance officer, I'm pretty confident I'd not have seen those photos. You know, that's a really good point. Uh, and that does make a difference. Uh, and th that says a lot about your reputation as well. Uh, so congratulations to you as well. We have time for one more story. And I think the story's on yours. This gentleman's name was actually Jimmy. And so when we call him Slippin' Jimmy, so make a long story short, I roll into a, a place of employment shortly after one of the employees has been killed. And it was a really bad industrial accident. And Jimmy has a very, very, very tangential role in the maintenance of the piece of equipment that failed about a year earlier. And his role a year earlier was to admit the technician that was there to service the piece of equipment. That's the only thing he had to do with this. Jimmy came up with an eight page single spaced statement about that event and how all the various and sundry managers had done all these things wrong and how he had done everything right and, and, and went through, you know, all of these crazy contortions he wrote a manifesto yes yes so i'm talking to him repeatedly because we know his deposition is going to come i mean we knew that he 
refused to talk to OSHA. And, you know, no matter how hard OSHA tried to get him to talk, he refused. So we get through the OSHA inspection, everything's fine. You know, but ultimately, and, and, you know, Frank, we end up handling the litigation that comes out of these in many instances. And so ultimately, you know, we end up with litigation and a deposition. And I'm talking to Jimmy and I'm talking to Jimmy and he's telling me stuff. And I'm like, Jimmy, that's not right. Jimmy, that's not right. And, um, you know, and, and I'm trying to talk him into like, you know, look, this is what really happened Jimmy. So it's the, it's the morning of his deposition. And... I'm kind of getting impatient with Jimmy because I know if I can just get through the shell, I'll get him to, to, you know, the point where like he'll look at the evidence and realize that everything he thought is not true. So I start sitting him down I start walking him through what happens. And he's telling me about like what time of day this technician showed up. I'm like, Jimmy, he showed up like first thing in the morning. You're saying it's last in the afternoon. Well, yeah, and, and, and I know I'm right. Jimmy, here's the, here's the log that shows when he signed in, and it shows that he signed in late in the afternoon. Oh, he did. You say this about the equipment, right? Yeah. Let me show you a photo that shows that your recollection of the equipment is wrong. Oh, wow, it, it is wrong. That, that picture, that's completely different than what I remember. You know, and, and went through about 10 different pieces of evidence. By the time I get done with this, Jimmy is literally crying. And he's horribly upset because for a year and a half or two years or whatever it was, by the time we get his deposition, he's been bearing this burden. He feels guilt and responsibility for the death of his coworker when Jimmy had nothing. To, I mean, it would literally, Frank, be like if you or I opened the door to somebody coming into the firm and a year and a half later, somebody dies because that service technician didn't do their job correctly. I mean, that, that, I mean, he had no role in this whatsoever. We get, and it's like, Jimmy, you know, let me show you redemption here. You don't have guilt here. It sounds like a guy with a guilty conscience. Yeah. And and, and he's bawling and crying. He's like, but that's not what I remember. And, And the moral of the story for our audience is guilt is powerful, but it, it's one of those things where I don't think the average person on the street appreciates just how guilt will make people do some of the craziest things, even if it's not legitimately based guilt. In this case, it was a younger person got killed. This guy had sort of touched on this piece of equipment when he let this service technician come through. He couldn't remember if there were things that he was supposed to do because of that service technician visit or not. And he just, you know, the, the guilt drove him to concoct this wild story in his mind. You know, ultimately- you know, we, we often suggest that to, to, as part of evidence preservation, to keep employees separated so they don't share stories and, and corrupt their memories. This is, a, you know, maybe the exception to the rule where it would have, uh, where it would have behooved him to speak with, with somebody who could do what you did earlier and uh, probably would have relieved him of a lot of guilt and, and saved, uh, saved poor recollection anyway. Except you have to be able to get the person to talk. But yeah, I guess that's right. Um, that's right, too. Small so, detail. Uh, yeah, little detail, yeah. So that ends another episode of uh, Safety Perspectives from Region 6. Uh, again, Frank Davis here with my law partner, John Surma. John, great talking to you. I guess our next uh, conversation will, will be uh, one about war stories, huh? 
Yes, sir. Looking forward to it. I hope you uh, take care of yourself, and I hope you enjoyed your visit here to Ogletree Tower in downtown Houston. It was very nice. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me down. Yes, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.